All right, this is an oral history interview with Kerry Timchuk for the Robert J. Dole Institute of Politics at the University of Kansas. We're in the Washington Law Offices of Alston and Byrd. Today is February 5th, 2008, and I'm Brian Williams. Let's start out, Kerry, with your first contact, first awareness of the Doles. Where did this start? Well, gosh, my first awareness of him, like most Americans, would have been reading about him in the news, watching him on TV. I grew up in Oregon. So I was not a Kansan, did not know him as my senator, but was involved and interested in politics from a young age and remember, of course, reading about him and when he was a senator, when he was chairman of the party, when he was the vice presidential nominee in 1976, and following his career. And uh, Were you very active in Republican politics in Oregon? or, or I was in, uh, at that time I was younger, I was a teenager, and but I just always had a fascination with politics. Uh, the first time we crossed paths... I came back to Washington, D.C. in 1985 to work for one of Oregon's congressmen, a fellow named Denny Smith. And Denny uh, endorsed Senator Dole for, during his presidential campaign in 1988. So I went to a couple of activities, um, and my job was working for Congressman Smith with other Dole supporting Congressman and Dole supporting staff. And Senator Dole came to Oregon and uh, arranged, helped arrange his visit out there for a fundraiser and, of course, crossed paths with him but didn't really get to know him. Uh, in 1989, the spring of 89, I went to work for Mrs. Dole when she was Secretary of Labor in the President Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush's administration, and as her speechwriter, and spent 17, 18 months of her time there at Department of Labor as her speechwriter, and again, crossed paths with Senator Dole at a variety of events, uh, didn't really get to know him personally. How did you um, get the job with uh, Elizabeth Dole? Through a mutual friend, a, a lady named Jenna Dorn, who was Mrs. Dole's uh, right-hand person at the Department of Transportation, and then went with her to the Department of Labor. Jenna was an Oregonian, and we had many mutual friends, and I had met her through Oregon Circles. And early on in her term as Secretary of Labor, Mrs. Dole was asked to go give a roast for a roast of a lady named Evie Dubrow, who was the longtime lobbyist for the International Lady Garment Workers Union. It was a legend in Washington, D.C., and apparently she had had trouble before with roast-like speeches and giving humorous speeches, and Jenna, for whatever reason, thought I was funny and had a good sense of humor, and she asked if I would write a roast for her, and I did, and it went over well, and soon after that they called and asked if I would like to come down and work for her full-time at the Department of Labor, uh, which I did, and spent the time there. Uh, when Mrs. Dole uh, was going to the Red Cross to become president of the Red Cross at the end of 1990, beginning of 1991, I got a call from Senator Dole's office, and he and his staff had heard about me uh, from Mrs. Dole, and I guess how pleased she was with what I was doing for her, and he was in need of a full-time speechwriter in the leadership office, and I went up to meet him and interview with him uh, for that job, and, and which led to me getting the job in uh, January of 1991, and I remained with him through uh, January of 1997. I read somewhere it was characterized that he stole you away from his wife. Is that right? He, uh, he, did, he did. She had assumed, uh, unbeknownst to me, she had assumed that I was going to uh, the Red Cross with her. But Jenna or nobody had mentioned that to me. So I started to look for another job, and I was almost uh, ready to sign an agreement to come back to Oregon to be assistant to the president at Willamette University, which was my alma mater. And when I got the call from to go interview with Senator Dole and the offer and figured I had to try that, and then I get this call from Mrs. Dole saying, you know, Carrie, I, I heard that Bob's offering you a job. And I said, well, he's, yes, he did. And are you going to take it? And I said, well, I was, I was going to. She said, 
well, I thought you were coming with me. And I said, Mrs. Dole, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. Uh, no one ever mentioned anything to me. And she said, well, let me talk to Bob about it. And then she, she called back and said, yeah, it's, it's okay, and, but we have an agreement that, you, that I still can use you if I need you. And so the entire time I was working for him in the leadership office, I also had a contract with the American Red Cross, and I continued to do speeches for Mrs. Dole on the side at, at the Red Cross. So, um, so give me a sense of what uh, it was like being speechwriter for the okay. senator. What was your parameters, your expectations? And so it was a great experience. We, my office was in the leadership office in the Capitol, in the RLO, and so con- constant access to him. Uh, the first couple speeches uh, that I was assigned, I would meet with him, wanted to get an ear for what he was saying, uh, you know, talk with him about the speech, what he wanted to say. Uh, and over the months and years, it developed, I think we developed a great rapport and relationship. And as with all good speechwriters, I think you want, you want to know what, you should know what your boss is going to say before they say it. And it got to the point, I think, where I, I knew what he'd want to say. Uh, most of the speeches he gave weren't really set speeches. Uh, they were, you know, as Republican leader, he spoke to almost every group that came to town. The National Association of Home Builders, the National School Board Association, the National this, the National that. When they're back here in Washington, D.C., they all wanted Bob Dole to come down and speak to him. So most of the, those talks were blended speeches of sorts where he, he spoke a bit about the top events of the day, whatever their issues were, and then took question and answer. Uh, they weren't really set speeches. So uh, most of my work in, in that arena was done, just giving him a few talking points, uh, you know, some, perhaps some one-liners, uh, and then let, letting them go from there. There were other occasions, of course, where there were set speeches, where uh, he would deliver uh, from, a, from a speech a lot, a lot of floor statements, important floor statements, uh, President Nixon's funeral, where he delivered the eulogy, uh, acceptance speech at the convention, his farewell speech to the Senate, this sort of thing, where there was more time was spent uh, on a speech, but usually a uh, speech would go into him. Uh, my draft, it would come out with his edits, his thoughts, and we would keep going back and forth until he was happy with it. And in the leader's office, were you the only speech? Writer? I was, so, and the only one in his uh, his hard office as well as his Kansas office. Uh, I kind of looked at. Uh, if he was giving a speech on the floor about a legislative proposal, I would often review it for the legislative assistant to make sure it was fit with what he wanted to say and was his style and format. And I think the goal of any speechwriter is I wanted Bob Dole to sound like Bob Dole. I didn't want him to sound like Kerry Timchuk because uh, I'm not a senator. He was a senator. So I tried to write and put things that others were writing in his language and, and language that he would use. So yeah, it was a, a very busy time period in my life from nine, January of 91 through uh, when he left the Senate in uh, in July, I believe, of 2000 or 1996 to go full-time to the presidential campaign, I went with him to the campaign and wrote speeches for he and Mrs. Dole uh, on the campaign, and then stayed with him after the election of November through January, helping him uh, respond to correspondence and communications and with some of his late-night talk show appearances that he did after the campaign. And since, I should say, since leaving the, uh, his employee in January of 97 and returning to Oregon, I have helped him uh, with the two humor books he did with great pre- political wit, laughing almost all the way to the White House, and great presidential wit, I wish I was in this book. So continued a relationship with him since then, helping, helping with his book projects. When you first came aboard, was there a sharp learning curve for yourself? There was a learning curve as to his style. I was used to Mrs. Dole's style. Uh, they have very two different styles. She, uh, 
she likes uh, more scripts, more word-to-word speeches. She likes to give a speech, and she's an outstanding speaker. Uh, Senator Dole is more off the cuff. More, uh, he's forgotten more about politics, of course, than I could ever know. And he was, he was more off the cuff and willing to just shoot from the hip and take Q&A. And, uh... But along with learning to speak in their voices, mm-hmm. you also had a lot of issues, I would imagine, to master as well. A lot of issues, and I uh, would get material, or if he was to give a speech on the floor about health care, then the health care legislative assistant to the chief of staff, Sheila Burke, who knew a lot about the issue, would provide me with the material, and then I would try to work it into a, a speech for him or a floor statement for him. So, yeah, as a good speechwriter is a generalist rather than a specialist. You know a little bit about every topic and not a lot about any, any one topic. So I tried to be a good generalist. Now, Dole has a reputation for deviating from anything that's prepared. <laughs> absolutely, for him, particularly so. in the campaigns. But uh, you probably encountered this. Oh, absolutely. On there too. were, uh, you know, a lot of good lines that he didn't use, and probably some bad lines <laughs> that he didn't use as well. But no, he's the he was the boss, and uh, and he has a, a ability after all his years in politics to know to size up the audience, to know if they want to hear a speech, if or if they'd rather just hear him talk off the cuff for a while. Um, He's, you know, he's been in the audience and heard a lot of speeches as well, and he he knows what works and what doesn't, and what they're looking for. And he also, of course, had the best sense of humor of anybody on Capitol Hill or in Washington D.C., and always delighted the audience with uh, lots of lots of uh, jokes and one-liners and asides. And uh, he enjoyed telling uh, Strom Thurmond jokes. This was, of course, when Senator Thurmond was. Uh, still alive and in the Senate and would always like to tell jokes about how old Senator Thurman was. And so a lot of work I did was trying to think of one-liners about, about how old Senator Thurman was. So. I was going to ask you about that. Um, <clears throat> being in, in the position of having to be funny, mm-hmm. how, did, what, how, did, how did you approach that particular... Well, he's so naturally funny on his own that he didn't need much help from me or anybody else. But uh, there were times where I would do one-liners for him. Uh, he was master of ceremonies, I remember, a great event uh, when you're at Strom Thurmond's 90th birthday party. It was down at the J.W. Marriott Hotel. It was the biggest event in D.C. Uh, President Clinton had just taken office. He was coming to the reception. President Nixon, uh, former President Nixon, was alive and was, was attending the reception as a special guest. James Brown, the music soul star, was there to sing at the birthday. It's a command performance, a thousand people jamming the Marriott for Thurman's 90th birthday, and Dole was the MC and had to be funny and introduce all the speakers, and we worked uh, a lot on it because it was just a big public event and gave him a lot of one-liners, and he was a, he was a smash hit. Uh, it, was, it was, just was a great evening for him, and President Nixon told him later it was the funniest performance he'd ever seen uh, anybody give, even funnier than Jack Benny, I think was, Nixon, was Nixon's words, which told you how Nixon thought about, about humor. But uh, so yeah, he was, he was enjoyed making people laugh, so that was fun to, in that regard. Now, in that particular instance, sort of what proportion of his uh, speech was your work and what proportion his? How- that, that one was more scripted work, where it was, because uh, his role as MC was to bring the speakers off, move the speakers on, introduce everybody with a little joke or witticism, so those were all pretty much put down beforehand, but we spent a lot of time talking back and forth. Uh, I also worked with him a number of times on a gridiron-type speech, where the gridiron club and the alfalfa club, of course, the two big evenings in Washington, D.C., where politicians are expected to be funny, and the pressure's on them to be funny, so we uh, I helped him with a few of those speeches as well over the years. 
Now, when two humorists sit down to <laughs> discuss some, an upcoming event or prepare for an upcoming event, do you play off each other, or do you sometimes get, is it competitive? Do you get in each other's way? No, more play off each other. I just, you know, obviously I, I just threw out the kitchen sink as many jokes as I can think of, and then he picks the ones that are he's comfortable with, or he would improve them, or he does have the, you know, he has the timing of Jack Benny. He's a great one-liner, and he's got the kind of the acerbic humor of a David Letterman type guy, which is, I think is why he got along so well with, with Letterman and Leno and... Uh, he knows he knows what a good line is, and he has good timing, and uh, also knows the. I mean, the most important rule of I think, political humor is self-deprecating humor, and he knows how to to joke about himself as well. When he appeared on Leno and, and Letterman, did you work with their staff? Yes, worked with their staff to talk about uh, topics that would be discussed. Uh, when he was on Letterman, shortly before he announced his candidacy in 1995, in fact, he almost almost announced on Letterman. Uh, Letterman, of course, is famous for the top ten list, and so we proposed to his producers that Dole come on and do a, a top ten, which was the top seven ways that Republicans were balancing the budget, and it was top seven because Republicans were cutting everything by 30%, so, and worked out a, a top seven that he delivered that, that night at the, on the Letterman show, which went over very well. Wow. <clears throat> um, compare, uh, you, you did this briefly, but mm-hmm. just a little bit more, the Dole the Bob Dole style versus the Elizabeth Dole. Mrs. Mrs. Dole enjoys giving speeches where uh, where the speech is written. She has a phenomenal memory. She can often memorize a 5, 10, 15 minute speech word for word and with, with no trouble at all. Uh, so write, writing for her, there was a little more pressure because you knew that every word you wrote, she was going to read and often, you know, often would give it in a speech. Whereas him, as I said, the majority of events were talking points. Here's, here's what they're interested in, here's a few jokes about current events, and then go from there. So a little less pressure on that, and you don't have to spend as much time working, working on every word. Were there certain issues during the period you were working with him uh, that were particularly ticklish and had to be wordsmithed very carefully? I'm thinking of NAFTA or health care or any of the big political issues? No, not, not so much. I mean, as Republican leader of the Senate and as then the presidential candidate, I mean, but mostly as leader when I was there, you know, he was expected to comment on everything. I mean, every issue that came up, he was would have to talk about it on the floor. So it, there wasn't so much... You know, there wasn't any censorship going on. I don't think we, uh, yeah. Of course, you want you have to be careful and not go over some lines. But he was Bob Dole says what he what he's thinking. And but were there certain um, certain issues that you think back on that were particularly uh, pertinent or well, the health care debate went on, of course, in the early years of the Clinton administration, and uh, so there are a lot of speeches about health care uh, on the floor during that debate. And I remember. The beginning speech he gave uh, at the debate, he, he started by saying, "America has the best healthcare system in the world. America has the best healthcare system in the world. America has the best healthcare system in the world." And he said, "I say it three times because it's got to be the at the end of the debate we have to be able to say the same thing. Whatever we pass, America still has to have the best system in the world." So, uh, but he, again, he talked about. I had to learn a little bit more about farm policy than I ever knew before because coming from Kansas, of course, he was expected to talk and speak and be knowledgeable about agriculture issues, which he was, which I wasn't. So I needed some briefing on those issues from, uh, from his assistance on those issues. When he spoke uh, in, the, in the well, um, was that primarily spontaneous or was it 
was sort of the balance. a mix. Uh, there were some set speeches uh, on you know he, usually he would end up the debate. The leaders would end up the debate, and so there were set speeches there. Uh, he gave a lot of tributes uh, from the well. As again, as the majority or minority leader, he was expected to comment when a, a senator passed away, a governor passed away, a national figure like that, uh, or on the events of the day. Uh, so a lot of speeches uh, he gave there were from from speeches I had prepared for him for floor statements I had prepared. But then, of course, during the given flow of, of debate, he would also ad lib. Uh, so it was a mix mix of things in there. Sometimes he would use what I gave him and sometimes he didn't. Did your role change much uh, when he went from minority to majority or majority to minority? No, still essentially the same thing. The Senate rules are such that no matter if you're in the minority or the majority, you have you know, a certain degree of power. Uh, and in both those roles, he was expected to be the spokesman for his party in the Senate, which led to him speaking a lot on the, on the floor. Was there anything that you had to do to um, to uh, address his disability in terms of... The speeches were placed in, uh, in notebooks, and each page was put in a plastic uh, folder, uh, a paper holder, so they were easy for him to, to turn uh, with, his, with his left hand. Uh, so he, he couldn't deal with or use, you know, just unbound papers shuffling around. Uh, so they were, they were put in a portfolio in a notebook where it was easy for him to turn, turn the pages. I know someone has told me that uh, at one point he was asked to give a speech, but he had to hold the microphone. Mm-hmm. And he had notes in front mm-hmm. of him, and it, there was no way that he could do both at right. the same time. So, so that was a, he, he deviated from his prepared notes right. quite a bit on that. Yeah, on the floor of the Senate, he, you, you have a little lapel mic, so that made it, made it easy for him. So. Right, right. Um, do, you, do you think your role as speechwriter in Senator Dole's leadership office was remarkably different than speechwriters working with other members of Congress? I think it might have been somewhat different in the fact that I had such great access to him. Uh, part of the complaints you hear from uh, speechwriters is that they don't have access to the to the speaker. Uh, not only did I write the speeches, I also traveled with him. If he gave the speech in Washington D.C., I usually went along to uh, to hear what was said, to hear what worked, what didn't. I traveled with him frequently uh, to other trips across the country. Was in, went along to, to to hear what was working and what wasn't, and to get some local color. And often I could find out something at the event before he spoke that I could go tell him, you know, it's Congressman so-and-so's birthday, it's this, it's that, so he could ad-lib it at the beginning, and I think that made for for more effective speeches. I also started to deal a lot with some of his personal correspondence, and did a lot of his personal notes and letters uh, to to people. Uh, also gave me a, more of an idea on his style and what he, how he liked to word things. Um, because of my relationship uh, with Mrs. Dole, uh, we would talk often about her. I was in frequent contact with her, and he would come over with questions about where she happened to be during that day and ask me to deliver certain messages to him. So we became, you know, close on those issues as well and I think had a, a closer relationship than most senators do with their speechwriters. So. Tell me a little bit about uh, having that close relationship mm-hmm. and traveling with him yeah. and, and so forth. What was that like? It's traveling with a rock star. Uh, I mean, everywhere you went, people recognized Bob Dole. Uh, I remember one time especially um, when they had a ceremony. They put the uh, 
the Statue of Freedom back on the Capitol Dome. They took it off to clean it and then put it back on. And for the ceremony they had, when I believe when they put it back on, there was a huge crowd to watch. And uh, after it was done, Senator Dole and I believe it was Senator Mitchell, who was then leader, came out on the front steps of the Capitol, and there were 1,000 people there, 500 people there. And each and every one of them mobbed Bob Dole. They wanted to see Bob Dole. They wanted to shake his hand. They wanted to talk to him. George Mitchell walked away. No one knew who he was. I mean, Dole was a rock star in the, in the capital to the people. So uh, he, he was a pleasure to travel with uh, and just always on. I mean, he could, uh, he was, and didn't like not working. I mean, the plane rides were often used. Uh, he, he would invite the local congressman or senator with him on the plane. They were used to, for him to get information about where he was going and what was going on. Uh, we, uh, there wasn't any card playing on the, on the airplanes as we flew. It was, uh, it was all work. So, I remember coming back. Uh, I, I got to fly out on the congressional plane with him and the, a lot of the delegation to the Nixon funeral where he delivered one of the eulogies. And coming back, the plane, he uh, was right during the health care debate, and he started up a health care meeting in front of the plane to talk about strategy on, on the health care debate. So he, he didn't like to sleep much on the plane. He liked to, he liked to get work done and use the time. Did you have just casual off moments with him, or was that rare because of what you talked about? Well, you'd, you'd get some casual off moments with him and, and, and traveling with him and uh, eating, eating dinner out sometimes with him and uh, lots of time to, to talk. And to what would be topics, sort of small talk topics? For him? Current events, usually. That, I mean, what's going on in popular culture. And uh, he likes to, uh, you know, Washington, D.C. was his life and politics was his life and that was a topic of endless conversation. Uh, who's up? Who's down? What's next? What's new? What's who's you know who's on the move? Who's not? So he was always in the information gathering mode. Did you uh, have much of a role to play in his '92 re-election campaign out in Kansas? I, it was such an easy race. I mean, there was frankly not much of a campaign. Uh, he gave the shortest announcement speech in history, as we we joked. Uh, he was hadn't announced his intentions. He was asked at a press conference out there if he was going to run again, and he said yes. One word. And so they had buttons printed up that said yes. Uh, so I, you know, he went out towards the end of the campaign, but there was really no race against him in 1992. And it was, he spent most of his time, as he always did during uh, election years, traveling the country campaigning for Republican senators and Republican candidates, less time campaigning for himself. And he did a lot of work for President Bush, of course, that race as well. So was writing a lot of speeches for uh, on why Senator X, Senator Smith should be reelected as opposed to why Senator Dole should be reelected. So, um, you must have kept an extensive file of joke ideas and a whole bunch of topics, right? Mm-hmm. What happened to those files? I've got some of them with me out in Oregon. Uh, a lot of the material I had and and uh, notes and copies of things I sent to the Dole the Dole archives. Uh, when I first started working for Mrs. Dole, it's interesting, uh, she gave me a file of 20 or 25 uh, inspirational quotes that she'd like to use in speeches and found that were most effective, uh, Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or whoever. And over the years that I worked for her, we just I continued to put good quotes in that file, and she would found one, she'd give it to me to put in the file. And a few years back, a publisher heard about the file and asked, us to, asked her to, to share it with readers, so uh, I helped her with a book called Hearts Touch with Fire, My 500 Favorite Inspirational Quotations, which is, is out there now and, uh, and did quite well, and she's really proud of it. 
Did you, when you conveyed material to the Institute, uh, send along any explanatory information or sort of review what was? Yes, usually it was here's what I'm here's what I'm shipping and here's uh, you know what what it was. I remember a copy or the of his few notes he got from uh, original few notes he got from Richard Nixon that I had kept in a file afterwards. You know, notes that great speech or whatever and that type of thing. Uh, the picture of him signing his. Uh, his resignation letter. Uh, the last letter he wrote, the last few letters that he wrote before he signed the letter, one was a letter to his, his daughter Robin, because the first letter he wrote as a U.S. Senator after he was elected and sworn in was to his daughter Robin, who was at that time quite young. And so he and I had talked, and I had remembered reading that, and we decided that the last letter he should write as, was to his daughter Robin as well. So he, that was the last letter he signed uh, was to Robin. And the letter before that on his final day was a letter to Senator Inouye, his buddy, and uh, as you know, Senator Inouye and Senator Hart, the late Senator Hart and Senator Dole were all in the Percy Jones Hospital, and the next to last letter he signed was a letter to Senator Inouye uh, appointing him chairman of the Percy Jones Alumni Caucus in the Senate. So, Did April 14th figure much in your speech writing? The d- Dave is wounded. Usually there was a speech around that time of, uh, of thoughts. A lot of those speeches were on the importance of uh, helping those with disabilities. He used that day to, of course, to serve others with disabilities. It was always a good reminder, a good time to, to speak of larger issues like that. Um, <clears throat> so talk about the transition then from being speechwriter for the leader mm-hmm. and to being speechwriter on the 96 campaign. Well, probably the last, or the best speech, I think, that we ever worked on together was his farewell speech to the Senate. And when he announced that he was going to be resigning uh, from the Senate, of course, I had a couple months' notice when the, when the final day was going to be. So it was a speech I, I thought of and began to work on my own almost instantly. I knew his last speech from the Senate well would be a very emotional uh, speech, one that would be watched publicly and the media would be covered extensively and wanted it to be just a very special Bob Dole speech and his farewell to the place that had been his home for the last three decades almost, and um, I thought it should be a speech where he paid tribute to all those who had assisted him, uh, talked about the larger themes that he had brought to the Senate or tried to bring to the Senate, the major issues of his time, the personalities he had worked with. And as I worked on the speech, it became quite clear to me that the things that he was most proud of, the things that I had heard him speak of with the greatest sense of achievement, were all victories that he achieved with the support of Democrats and with the help of Democrats. Uh, Food stamps with Senator McGovern. uh, Social Security with uh, Senator Moynihan. And wrote that into the speech as he looked and reflected back and the things he had achieved. Um, It went over at that time as as we got closer to the campaign as he was going to be the nominee. uh, A lot of the speeches I wrote uh, I sent over to the campaign to be vetted over there to make sure that what he was saying was consistent with the message that they were putting out. It came back uh, to my desk with uh, their suggestions that any compliments of the Democrats, especially, most especially, Senator McGovern, be removed. That it was not helpful to have Senator Dole be praising the Democrats. Uh, I disagreed, uh, but didn't. it wasn't my choice. That was far above my pay grade. I sent it in to Senator Dole, that, and we had worked on this the draft before. I sent in the, the, the last draft that the campaign had seen with a note saying, you know, see the campaign's uh, suggestions. They don't want you to say 
very nice things about the Democrat. And they also sent over some suggestions which were much more partisan than I thought he would want to be from the Senate floor. I didn't think that he would want to give a campaign speech from the Senate floor, one attacking uh, Democrats, and which is some of the suggestions they made. And uh, within a couple hours after I'd sent it in to him, he came over, walked over to my desk and put it down and just basically said, ignore everything the campaign said. Um, said, I like Senator McGovern. He's a great man. And so he delivered that speech uh, pretty much as written. He ad-libbed uh, some from, from the floor as it, it unlocked, I think, other memories of him for the Senate. But I, th- I thought it was the, one of the best speeches he ever gave and, uh, and a, a remarkable time in the Senate. So that was the one I was proudest of working on. Uh, I went to the campaign uh, with him. Uh, I spent a lot a time, a great deal of time helping Mrs. Dole. Uh, I helped her with her wonderful convention speech that she delivered as she strolled the, the floor of the delegates without a, without a note in her hand. Uh, I, uh, to be frank, was... Um, the campaign was an interesting time. Uh, I went over with uh, some other folks from the Senate office. Uh, there were some in the campaign who... Sus- we were suspect because we were not as conservative as they were at the campaign. Uh, we were the, you know, the closet moderates and... They were suspicious of, of what, what we thought and what we wanted Senator Dole to say. So I was uh, not involved in a great many speeches in the campaign. I, I, I did write some one-liners, some, some jokes, some responses to, to current events. Um, and then the acceptance speech was an interesting time as well. Um, a fellow named uh, Mark Helprin, a professional author, very well-known, had written the first draft at the convention speech uh, that Senator Dole had been working on and practicing um, on. And it ended up where Mr. Helpern was apparently dismayed uh, that some changes were being made to the speech at the convention by Senator Dole, and he, and he left uh, the, convention, the week before the convention. And I spent much of the, that week then working with Senator Dole and making the changes that he wanted to make and making the speech more of his own um, so that was an interesting time to come aboard on that project during during the last week. Why do you imagine Halpern was selected to write that particular speech? He was a very elegant, very professional writer. He had met with Senator Dole uh, before Senator Dole. He had written some very nice things about Senator Dole, columns in the Wall Street Journal, I believe, about Senator Dole. And uh, Dole met with him, and as I recall, uh, Mark Halpern uh, came in and told him, that he should resign from the Senate, and Dole had been thinking the same thing, and so they had an inter- they shared an interesting thought on that, and then he helped, I believe, with the the speech where Senator Dole announced that he would be leaving the Senate, not his actual farewell speech, but the speech where he announced that he would be resigning, and that went over fairly well, and then I think they thought he would be good to write the acceptance speech. Uh, he was a my concern with the speech was that. Mr. Helprin is an outstanding, very elegant writer, but he write it, wrote for Mark Helprin. And there was much in it that I didn't think, in my opinion, that a lot of it didn't sound like Bob Dole. And then my goal the last week at the convention was to make it sound less like Mark Helprin and more like Bob Dole. What would be some of the key factors that would make it sound like Bob Dole? You use common sense words, plain words. You speak like someone from Kansas, from Russell, Kansas, would speak. And not someone, you know, not big, 
big erudite words. Not that Senator Dole wasn't intelligent. Of course, he was incredibly intelligent, but just there, he didn't speak like he was, you know, educated at Yale and Harvard. He spoke like he did when he talked to people in Kansas. And so changing some words and some quotes that obviously he wouldn't, that, that I didn't think were, he would give, that, that just weren't Bob Dole. What about sentence length? Sentence length, long, elegant sentences. I remember that a word they had in, they had him use the word verdant, to talk about the verdant, you know, fields or verdant prayers. Well, you know, verdant means green. Most people know what green means. Not many people know what verdant means. And so I was like, well, take that word out and put in the word green if you want him to talk about the green, the green fields. So it's that type of thing of changing the, uh, changing it to, to be more like Bob Dole. Let Dole be Dole was our, was our uh, motto. Um, let's go back to the <coughs> resignation from the Senate speech for just yep. a moment. Um, would it be accurate to say that the two hands that worked on that were you and the senator, or were there others His farewell that? speech? Mm-hmm. Yes, that was, that was essentially solely the senator and myself. And did you, uh, I was going to use the word lofty, <laughs> bring in the lofty element to the speech, or... I, I should say, let me let me correct what I just said, that many of the big speeches that he delivered, I would also run by uh, his very good friend and my very good friend, Richard Norton Smith. Uh, Rick worked for the Doles uh, for a time, went on to a distinguished career, of course, as a historian and presidential museum director, became a good friend of mine. Uh, Rick and I were uh, cohorts. Uh, we thought alike, usually. Uh, and I knew how much Senator Dole respected him. And if I saw a battle coming up and I needed uh, an ally on my side of, of the battle to do what I thought was the right thing for Senator Dole, I would often suggest or do on my own sending the speech to Rick. And, and then Rick's comments I would, could take into Senator Dole. And on the farewell speech, once we had it pretty much done, the first couple drafts, uh, I sent it to Rick. And, and Rick made a few suggestions as well as the quotation at the end. I believe the Carl Sandburg quote that's at the, at the end, uh, a few others. So uh, I wanted to correct that record before before I went on. So um, <clears throat> the um, yeah, uh, Elizabeth's speech to the convention is probably the thing that pe- most people will remember about that convention yep, so. in a way. Um, and it had the look of being pretty extemporaneous. Mm. Uh, so what was the balance of preparation? It was, uh, it was similar to the speech she had been giving on throughout the campaign. Uh, she had started to do what she had termed or someone had termed the dull stroll, where she was more comfortable walking into the audience and less comfortable behind a lectern because she was talking about you know, the man she loved and there was no need for a script. So over the course of the campaign, she had developed a little, uh, you know, a, a set piece of what she wanted to say, and it was her idea to do this at the campaign, uh, to do this at the convention. And the campaign people said, absolutely not. It was too risky. No one had ever left the podium before. What if uh, you tripped going down the stage? What if the microphone went out? What if, you know, the convention floors are notoriously rowdy places? What if a delegate, you know, shouted or grabbed or, you know, got too close or whatever? They had a hundred reasons why she shouldn't do it, and she had a hundred reasons why she should do it. And so they did it, and we went several backups. You know, there was three or four or five microphones in the audience in case every microphone went out of the place. Uh, she, the toughest part, she jokes, was having to walk down those stairs in high heels as she, as she left the podium. Uh, the people, as you recall, she, she talked and met people who had played a role in Senator Dole's life, uh, were placed in the con- 
the in with the delegates, uh, a nurse who had helped him when he was in the hospital, and so they were had been placed. Uh, she knew where they were. Uh, it was a speech that she practiced a great deal, and we practiced a great deal before she delivered it. She had it memorized. Um, much of it was already there in, in her heart, but some of the new stuff, the transitions, the material about the special guests in the audience, it was all added in, and she had it down pat. I was sitting in the audience at the convention with the speech, with the text in my lap as she delivered it, and she dotted every I, she crossed every T, she didn't miss more than a few words as she delivered this half-hour speech. It was a virtuoso performance, and she uh, was quite, you know, properly praised for one of the best speeches ever at a convention. And she didn't carry notes or anything? She did not. Nothing. Nothing in her hand. There was no cue cards. There was no teleprompter. There was not a note in her hand. It's a real achievement, yeah. isn't it? Considering the stakes so. And, and, and so forth. Um, did, did she have a microphone problem? She did. The first one failed. First one quit very as she came down the stairs, but there was the backup, and we had a. If that had failed, we had a backup to a backup and a backup to the backup. It, we, there were enough microphones in the audience to amplify anything, so we were we were prepared for it. But uh, and what about rehearsals for that? How did that go? Just, uh, she had one, I think, walk through just basically where she came out on the stage and was shown where the stairs were, went down there, where people would be sitting, where you know security had blocked off certain areas. She knew where the people would be located. But she didn't give a speech, uh, practices I recall, in the actual hall because she didn't want to spoil it. And uh, most of the practices were done in her office. She and I, I had the speech in my lap. She would deliver it and from memory. And then, you know, occasionally there'd be a word that we'd want to change that she didn't like that was uncomfortable. And so we'd, we'd make the changes as, as we went up to the weeks to the convention. And at what point did she meet the people that were planted in the audience that she engaged? Early, probably at the practice session, I believe. Uh, she knew, again, knew where they were. Many of them were people she already knew. Uh, so it wasn't a surprise to to anybody. And were th- were their responses memorized too, or was that no? They they didn't actually speak. They were just nodded their heads. And and here's you know so and so who was there at Percy Jones Hospital, and here's the fellow who spurred on the founding of the Dole Foundation. Was another one of the Tim Jones, I believe his name was, was another one of the people in the audience, and a capital security guard who's in her Dole assisted that type of that type of thing. And what about the acceptance speech then of, of the senator? He, I think, had a practice session in, at, at the hall. Uh, most of the work the last week was done uh, at the convention. We we did a lot of work on the roof of the hotel in San Diego, uh, changing, going over it word for word, you know, several several times in the days leading up to him delivering it. I got a he had a hat on. I didn't. I got a sunburn on my head <laughs> a couple days before the before the convention. So. Um, we haven't talked about his State of the Union response in right. early 96, uh, January. What about that? Did I was not uh, involved. Again, that was uh, done over at the campaign. They had some other folks doing that. Uh, I had submitted to them a draft which they thought was too moderate and not political and partisan enough. So I was out of the loop on, on that one. Do you have any thoughts about uh, how he delivered your speech? Uh, I've, I like to like to think that mine would have been much, much better received. I thought it was more appropriate for the, the tone and the time and what people were, were looking for. Uh, I did have the, I guess, revenge, of not the correct word, of being able to write jokes about the speech afterwards. He uh, soon after the speech, which did not get good reviews, and the uh, the old he spoke to the 
to the uh, National Governors Association, and one of the opening lines I gave him was the fact that, you know, he tried to give a fireside speech, but the fire died out, and uh, made jokes about how poorly the speech was received, and it went over very well, and there was a great story in the Washington Post about Dole back to his, you know, funny self, and so had a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of uh, self-satisfaction over that. Um, and then I guess on to the consensus comes concession speech. Concession speech, yeah. It was uh, I had been asked uh, again because I wasn't asked to do much in the campaign. I had been asked to uh, write both a draft victory speech and a draft concession speech. Uh, by then, of course, this was in the last month of the campaign, and it was pretty clear to anybody with a pulse where the campaign was headed. And I, I spent a short deal of time on the concession speech or on the acceptance speech or the victory speech, and a great deal more time on the concession speech because I figured that's where it would would head up, end up, and um, knew it would be you know one of the last big speeches that he that he delivered. Uh, last certainly one of the last speeches with a national audience watching him. Wanted it to be special. Wanted it to encapsulate his career. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with, with that. It went up to him. I don't think he ever saw it until that afternoon uh, in his hotel room. And he called me. I got called up to the to the room. You know, I think after the networks already called the race and about an hour, probably 45 minutes even, before he was to come down and deliver it. And he had accepted most of it. I crossed out a few lines thinking it was too long, he told me, and needed, needed to be briefer. Uh, one of the parts he crossed out was the part that I thought was, was the best. And I had heard him tell the story and knew it from Unlimited Partners, uh, he and Mrs. Dole's autobiography, which I helped when it came through a, a new version in 96, helped to, with that version, that one of the first things he ever said as a, as a public servant was after he was sworn into the Kansas legislature in 1950, I believe, and he tells a story about a reporter came up and said, what are you going to do now? And he said something to the effect of, well, I think I'll just back, sit back for a few days, and then I'll stand up for what is right. And I thought that was the first thing he said as a public servant or as a politician. It should be the last thing he said, too. So at the end of the concession speech, I had suggested that he say, you know, if someone asks me tomorrow... Uh, tells the story, and if someone asked me tomorrow what I'm going to do next, my answer would be the same as it was 46 years ago. I guess I'll just sit back for a few days, and then I'm going to keep on standing up for what I believe is right. So I thought it was a perfect conclusion to the speech, and that it was one of the parts he had cut out. So I had half an hour, 20 minutes, literally, to run down to the teleprompter to make the changes to the speech that he had made, the word changes here and there, and take some of the stuff out he wanted to take out. And I got to that part, and I thought to myself, you know, <laughs> what's he going to do, fire me? You know, he had lost, the campaign was over, uh, so I left it in. First time that I had ever, first and only time I'd ever disobeyed, you know, anything he had asked me to do or told me to do. And crossed my fingers, and then was there when he went down to deliver the speech. And at the very beginning, he ad-libbed the classic line, you know, this is, I was just thinking on the way down in the elevator that tomorrow's the first day I don't have any, any place to go, anywhere to be. Got a, got a nice laugh. And then at the end, I, he read the speech, and then he came to the conclusion. And I, and I could see a little start when he showed up in the teleprompter thinking to himself, didn't I cut that out? But he delivered it and gave it, delivered it well. And it was probably the most quotable part that night and the next day and on the news. So, Did he ever tell you after? Never said a thing to me. So, And I 
had the pleasure of introducing him uh, a few years back at an event in Oregon, and I told the story about how, and apologized to him there for being the first time <laughs> that I disobeyed, disobeyed him, and he just laughed about it. Um, what was the room like when you came in uh, upstairs before that uh, concession speech? It was quiet. It was he and uh, Mrs. Dole and uh, Robin and the managers and a few friends and Senate colleagues, and you know, it was quiet. There was... You know, again, it was not a big shock. Everyone knew certainly where it was headed. So, um, what role did unlimited uh, partners play in in the campaign? Do you think? Yeah, I think it. it when it came out again, it, 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 the first edition came out in 1988, before my time. And as I recall, unfortunately for the book and for the Doles, it was released the week after we lost the New Hampshire primary. Uh, which essentially ended his campaign. So it never really received much of a play. And once he cinched the nomination, uh, again, we, he and I spoke of, well, now's the time to, to bring it out again. And talked to the publishers. They were interested. Uh, Rick Smith and I were hired to quickly do a quick uh, update of the eight years that had passed since 1998 when it had, when it had come out before us. So it could come out as a new version, a new forward, new ending. So we, we did that. And he uh, was on the Today Show and on Regis and Kathy Lee at the time. He and Mrs. Dole talking about the show. A lot of folks, you know, wanted him to sign it, and it gave him, uh, you know, it, 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 their great life story. That both of their life stories is I mean, fascinating, and so they were able to talk about non-controversial items or non-controversial issues as they as they talked about the book. And still today, they, they get requests for it. I think, and people want in autographed copies of it. Who wrote the original? Idiot Rick version? Smith was the. Chief. And did much of the first part change? I guess not. Not really much. There was a few parts we had to change for factual things. People they have mentioned might have passed away since then, and make reference to that. Just you know, tidying up the first the first part of the book or the first uh, the original version, and then taking it from there with the uh, the life from there and kind of as platform for the campaign. Throughout this discussion of the campaign, there's been a sort of subtext running here, and that is um, this is putting it too bluntly, but you versus the campaign staff. Mm. It wasn't uh, just me. There was others as well. So it, it was, like I said, it was an interesting, sometimes awkward time. Uh, what, just, what were your thoughts, what's your observations now, looking back on that and what it signified and well, what I, it was I all about? Thought, as I look back, uh, was Senator Bill going to win the campaign? No. I mean, unfortunately, when he announced for president in early 1995, uh, you know, President Clinton was at his lowest point. It was soon after the Republicans had taken control. The first two years of his administration had been chaos, and you know, the American public reacted and by putting the Republicans for the first time in control of both houses of Congress, first time in half a century. And every poll showed Senator Dole beating President Clinton. Any other Republican probably could have beat him too. Uh, but by the time it got around to Senator Dole getting the nomination, I don't think any Republican could have beaten President Clinton. By then, his administration had righted itself. Uh, he had brought in new people. They had different goals. Uh, we suffered through the closing down of the government. Uh, Speaker Gingrich, I believe, overplayed his hand. Uh, they ran months of commercials showing Dole and Gingrich together. Dole, uh, Gingrich was certainly the most unpopular Republican in America at the time, uh, among people besides Republicans. And they tied him together, and uh, it was clear, you know, in hindsight, and even then, that uh, pretty much it was over before the before the campaign got going. There was just a small window where he might actually uh, have had a chance. So, it, be that as since he was going to 
probably not win. Uh, my thought was that he would have been much more comfortable and, and better served uh, campaigning as himself. I thought the campaign tried to make him something that he wasn't, which was to make him uh, Jack Kemp or to make him Phil Graham or to, to deny his record of achievement of working with Democrats. Uh, they wanted to make him uh, more, uh, more partisan, I believe, in his beliefs, less willing to get something done, uh, draw more lines in the sand. Did, did you ever confront, were there confrontational experiences you had? No, that was above my pay grade. So, and again, again by then it was, you know, too late. Not going to happen. I guess, <clears throat> to what extent, looking at their viewpoint and approach on things, to what extent was it ideological and to what extent was it strategic? Well, probably a little bit of both. I, I, I give them, you know, certainly they were the professional managers. They, I think, had decided this was how the only way he could win or this was the way he could win. Uh, and I probably a little bit of strategy and, and some ideology as well. Uh, and a lot of it we see going on with the current presidential campaign, the split among Republicans between uh, far right and the moderates. And uh, so I, I assume they... They knew what they were doing. They uh, got him the nomination, but I, there were times when I doubted it, and then it, he just didn't sound like himself. Uh, I recall, you know, the week, two days after the election, or three days, and the Friday after the election, Tuesday, was when he was on the Letterman show. The Letterman show was was uh, taping here in Washington D.C. They had invited him to be on. He uh, agreed to do it, so we spent some time, uh, he and I, writing possible one-liners, and again working with the Letterman producers, what they'd be asking. Well, and, and he went on and went down there and was uh, just a hit. I mean, just a grand slam home run. He was hilarious. And the calls and letters we got after that, where was that Bob Dole during the campaign? If I had known you were that funny, I would have voted for you for president, which is, kind of says something about why the American people are voting. And I've, I've, that's part of the question I've been asked most frequently over the years after that occurred was, why didn't we see that Bob Dole uh, on the campaign? Why did we see the Bob Dole we saw? And I you know, it gave us some thought, and the, the reasons I came up with were, one was, uh, you know, I think he was, part of it was, if not nerves, was just humbleness and humility. I mean, he had, here was Bob Dole uh, from Russell, Kansas, you know, born and raised in poverty, being the nominee for President of the United States. This is serious stuff, and I better not be a wiseacre at it. Uh, I always tell people the toughest word I ever heard him say in all the years I spent with him. Uh, you know, a lot of politicians have a reputation for... Not very nice language. The toughest word I ever heard Dole say, in public or private, is was Jiminy. When he was surprised with something, it would be Jiminy, and which I think shows you what a, what a gentleman he was. He would no sooner swear in front of a, a woman than, than anything, and then fly to the moon. Uh, so I, I envisioned Bob Dole in his private mo- moment saying Jiminy. You know, here's Bob Dole from Russell, Kansas, the nominee for president. Who would have thunk it? And I better. This is serious stuff. So I think part of it w- was that. A lot of it was the fact that he got burned, I think, early on by the press in the campaign. When he was the leader of the Senate, he had the press in stitches, always. I mean, every day he'd have a dugout, they called it, or would talk with the, the press about the events of the day. And he would do the one-liners and zing this reporter and that reporter and jokes and asides, and everyone would laugh, and very little of it would get reported. Well, when you're running for president, the rules change dramatically, and everything you say is fair game. There is no off the record, no you know, comment that doesn't get reported. And early in his campaign, he'd make some 
jokes about the, how dull his speeches are, you don't have to listen to this, or make a joke, and it would get reported and would not reflect well uh, on, the, on the campaign. And so I think he realized he had to be a little bit careful about that and maybe couldn't be as loose and funny and spontaneous with the press as he had been. So I think it was a combination of, of those two things that made him lose a little bit of his sense of humor during the campaign, but he picked it right back up <laughs> the day after the election. So. So he sort of willingly took the dictates of the campaign staff. And, I think and I think he did. I think he uh, hired the people for a reason. He was got the rap in 1988 for not listening to the staff, for uh, you know, kind of micromanaging the campaign. And I think the lesson he learned was about well, this time he let the managers manage the campaign. I think there was some pushback at the end, and, and over the years there was there was over the campaign there was some pushback I could see, but. It was his idea to do the 96-hour marathon at the end, and we probably made some changes to the acceptance speech that the campaign didn't agree with. Uh, there were a lot of folks on the campaign that he hadn't known before that were new to him, and he, like most people, is comfortable with what he's comfortable with. And uh, I think towards the end, he turned back to what he was most comfortable with and people he was more comfortable with. I do have one great story yeah. which shows you mm-hmm. Bob Dole, the man, and he got a lot of letters uh, over the course of time during my year there, my years with him from from kids and young people with disabilities uh, who regarded him as their hero for what he had done with his disability and his work with the American with Disabilities Act. And he got this letter one time from a young gal, I think she was eighteen or nineteen, from Oregon, a little town called Medford, Oregon, named Whitney Duggan. And Whitney had been rendered a uh, quadriplegic from a horse riding accident. And she had adopted Senator Dole as her hero and started writing him letters uh, before the campaign and then during the campaign, uh, for a couple of years be- be- before the campaign, actually. And because she was from Oregon and because I'm from Oregon and I brought a lot of Oregonians in to see him over the years, uh, the letter ended up at my desk and I responded, for, you know, wrote Senator Dole's response in, in the letter because of his, uh, his disability. He doesn't there were very few handwritten letters from Senator Dole. Uh, most, all his personal notes were typed, and I would do a great deal of them, and he would sign them or write a little note. So we started, to, started writing back to Whitney on his behalf, and they started the pen pal relationship where he would write, she would write, he would write, she would write. Eventually, uh, he invited Whitney and her mother out to D.C. They came back, and he set up, we set up a whole series of VIP tours for him. They got to see him and have lunch with him, and she was a marvelous, inspiring young, young woman in a wheelchair, and obviously... Uh, was going to be in the wheelchair for the remainder of her life. And uh, during the campaign, she wrote a lot of notes uh, to him. And on the, the Thursday, <clears throat> the day, two days after he lost, I was in the office, in the campaign office, and he came to my desk and he said, you know, I bet Whitney's feeling pretty low. Let's give her a call. And I thought to myself and think still, you know, here was a man who just two days before had lost the biggest prize American politics has to offer, the, the prize that he had tried to achieve for, for so many years. And his thought just two days later was not with himself. <clears throat> they were with a young woman in Medford that he'd met only once. And uh, he called her, and of course she was just stunned by the call and talked with her about how it's okay to lose and you just have to move on and there's, there's life after losing. And I think he enjoyed the call so much that he came back and said, let's do more of these. And we found another you know, 10 to 12 letters from young people who had written during the campaign or immediately had <clears throat> faxed him something after the campaign saying, you know, I voted for you, I was for you, go get them. And we called those young people up too and uh, just got a great reaction. I remember one, one of the ones he called was a, 
eight or nine or ten year old boy in Michigan. And uh, once word got out about the call he had made, the press, his local press, went to the little boy, and his quote in the paper was, "I was so excited I had to go to the bathroom." <laughs> so, but that I think that shows you uh, <clears throat> Bob Dole, the man. I mean, he treated. Every year uh, on the Hill, back then at least, they had there's a newspaper called The Hill on the Hill, and they would ha- ask the the minions of the Senate, for lack of a better word, the security guards, the waitresses, the uh, elevator attendants, to rate the five nicest and five nastiest senators. And the runaway winner every year for nicest senator was Bob Dole, and that's because he treated everybody like a senator, be they a elevator operator or or a senator. He treated everyone. The same with uh, great respect. I'm going to stop here for a moment. Okay. Let's cover a few few more topics before we're done here. Um, you had mentioned the uh, funeral eulogy for Nixon. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that speech. Well, President Nixon, of course, passed away in uh, 1994, I believe, in the in this. April or May, as I recall, of 94. Um, he had just been back to the Capitol in January. January of 94 was the 25th anniversary of his swearing in. And I conspired with Tom Corologos, uh, a very well-known lobbyist in Washington, a close advisor to Senator Dole and a great friend of Senator President Nixon's, to stage an event, have Senator Dole host a lunch in his honor. And Tom and I put together this event, which was held in the Mansfield Room up in the in the Capitol, and it was Nixon's last trip to the Capitol, and it was a great, a great event. And then, several months later, he had the stroke and then passed away. And the uh, request came in uh, very soon after the, the death from the family that they would like Senator Dole to be one of the speakers. It was, uh, as I recall, uh, Governor Wilson of California, Secretary of State Kissinger, uh, Senator Dole, and then President Clinton were to give the speeches. And so, this, of course, was going to be a very important, big speech. Uh, Senator Dole and President Nixon had gone back a long, a long time and had a very interesting, complicated uh, relationship. Uh, immediately brought in, I, I brought in Rick Smith, and uh, as a great presidential scholar, uh, Rick did the first draft of, of the speech and then got it to us, and then Senator Dole and myself and Rick went back and forth for the, the, the days we had. It wasn't a very long time period we had before the funeral to at the speech uh, in shape and, and how he wanted it, and, uh, and flew out with him to the to the funeral on, on the plane, and he delivered, of course, the the speech where he, you know, it, it ended up being such an emotional experience for him that he that he broke down at the end, and uh, but was a I think very moving tribute to the president Nixon by, by Senator Dole. Uh, that was not entirely uncommon. That that emotions would overcome Senator Dole, right? No, he is. He does wear his, and as time has gone on, I think he wears wears his emotions on his on his sleeve. And there are certain topics uh, that do bring up uh, some memories uh, when he talks of the Warriors, when he talks of Russell, Kansas, when he talks about the cigar box, when he talks about others. There are times where he will have to catch himself. Uh, certain certain people, certain memories, his his, his parents. You know, when I when I think about that, I'm always reminded of Senator Muskie mm-hmm. crying in the snows of New Hampshire in 1972, which just uh, killed his uh, political aspirations mm-hmm. in one stroke, didn't it? It did. Have times changed? Do you think? I think so. Well, you know, this year Senator Clinton received a lot of uh, attention for uh, 
catching catching her voice. There were no tears in her eyes, but it appeared that they might be coming in New Hampshire, and it was given a wide credit for helping her win that primary. So I, I would think that times perhaps uh, perhaps have changed. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned the his war experiences is another one of those topics. You said that you would participated somewhat in the writing of the book. He uh, yes, he had a uh, the, the new book, uh, One Soldier's well, One Soldier's Story, which came out. Uh, he had a uh, a main co-author, uh, Ken Abraham, I believe, and uh, Rick and myself and Mike Marshall here from the office were brought in early and met with Ken on several occasions and kind of divvied up the responsibilities. And my responsibility as over the years, has kind of been the dull institutional memory, uh, knowing what he said, when he said it, where he's gone, you know, who was there, and uh, helping with the with unlimited partners, more or less his life story. So, my kind of job in reading the book was to into looking at the draft as Ken did it was one to make suggestions, uh, contribute some material, but mostly to re- to read it and review it again for to make sure it was in Bob Dole's language and Bob Dole ease and uh, one of the Suggestions I remember that I made to one of the drafts was Ken had talked about uh, Senator Dole's was talking about his favorite foods or his favorite pie was banana cream pie and he spelled cream C R E M E with one of the little things tildes over the e's and I sent a note to Ken I said Bob Dole does not eat banana cream pie he eats banana cream C R E A M pie so that was part of my uh, responsibility there I had more to do responsibility wise with the two humor books that uh, he published after leaving office, Great Presidential Wit and Great Political Wit. And those were combinations of Rick Smith and myself helping Senator Dole with the, with, with the format, with the books, with the material, with putting everything together, with thoughts and suggestions. So that was a, uh, a full-time job for a while almost, uh, doing those books with Rick and Senator Dole helping put those together. And, and what was the process there? Uh, once the deal had been made, uh, Rick and I and Senator Dole would go back and forth uh, with drafts. Rick and I divvied up the uh, the work, uh, the sections of the book and ideas and uh, went uh, went back and forth. Uh, Rick is many things, but he's not a typist. And so I, <laughs> I ended up being the typist on, on uh, would take Rick's material, most of it handwritten. Rick would, hand, would handwrite his material and get it to me and then put it into a, a text form. What about doing the research on those? Research, we uh, did that, too. We had lots of material. I mean, most of the jokes were... Most of the content of the book was great stories that had already been told or jokes that had already been told. Uh, so Rick and I read extensively. Rick, as a presidential historian, had a you know a wealth of background already going, going into it. And, and I read a great deal, too, and, and just to learn as much as I could about political humor and presidential humor and find the best stories and, and some nuggets that hadn't been reported. Some of them... Had, some of the old saws have been out there for so long. You know, we wanted also some new material uh, for the did, books. Did you personally make some really rich discoveries in the preparation of those books? Did, no, no, not that, none that I can recall off the top of my head. Just some great lines that I had never heard before. I mean, some good jokes material found in some books that had kind of gone out of reportage and hadn't hadn't been reported for very well. So it was nice to bring those back to light. Um, this is just occurring to me as you're talking. Uh, in terms of of uh, Dole's own uh, colleagues, his own contemporaries, uh, who was humorous number two? Alan Simpson from Wyoming, uh, great wit, uh, very funny, great storyteller. He would he would probably be number two. And it's know. interesting that they were leader and whip share, uh, t- together. The so yeah, uh, you know another great ex- experience for me and memory I have and fascinating story. 
uh, was because of my Oregon background. Uh, I was a close friend of Senator Hatfield's, Mark Hatfield, who was in the Senate uh, almost the entire time Senator Dole was there. Uh, Senator Hatfield was there from 67 to 97, uh, one year, two years earlier than Dole, and then a year, a year later. Uh, in 1995, after the Republicans took over Congress, one of the biggest battles at the time was over the balanced budget amendment in the effort to uh, pass the constitutional amendment in the Congress and send it to the states for enactment. It had passed the House under Gingrich's leadership with greater than the two-thirds majority needed and was going to, uh, it came over to the Senate. Barry watched battle at a time right before Senator Dole was announcing for the presidency. His leadership was, you know, thought to be at, at stake there and this would have been a huge victory for him if he could achieve it. And as I recall, the Senate was <clears throat> 55 or 56 Republicans and 44 Democrats or whatever, or 54, 46, one of the two. We thought we had every Republican, and we thought we had 11 Democrats that had pledged to vote for it, uh, giving him the 67 votes he needed. He needed greater than two-thirds. He needed 67 votes. The night before, the day before the vote, Senator Hatfield came over to see Senator Dole and to tell him that he had searched his conscience and that in all good conscience he could not bring himself to vote for it, not believe it belonged in the Constitution, leaving the senator one vote short of, of the victory. Uh, senator Dole came over to my desk and said, Mark just came to see me. He said, he's not going to vote for it. What can we do to, to change his mind? And you know, we brainstormed about ideas about people who might influence him. Uh, he was close friends with Billy Graham. Could that, could that help? He, you know, anything. Uh, but I knew in my heart of hearts that knowing Senator Hatfield, as I did, and I think Senator Dole knew that, Senator Hatfield was one senator who was resistant at all to political pressure. If he felt it in his conscience, that's what he was going to do. Uh, but to show you the uh, respect for which Senator Hatfield had for Senator Dole, and that not many people know about this incident, but the day, a couple hours before the final vote, he came over to Senator Dole's office and he offered to resign on the spot immediately, uh, leaving 99 senators in the Senate, meaning that the 66 votes we had would be greater than two-thirds, and it would be enough to give Senator Dole uh, this victory. And Senator Hatfield was going to be retiring, you know, the next year anyway. He was not going to be running for re-election. He was still at 18 months, or, but I thought it was just an amazing gesture on Senator Hatfield's part. And I think some leaders who want to achieve victory, that's the end-all or be-all, would have accepted the offer and would have achieved this his historic victory. Uh, Senator Dole did not. He rejected it out of hand, I think, as believing as he did that any senator has the right to vote his conscience. And the year after he left office, uh, Senator Dole, uh, in 97, I believe, or maybe in early 98, he was invited back to the Senate to give a speech as part of this leader's lecture series that Senator Lott had started, Leader Lott inviting all the former leaders back to speak. And I helped him uh, with a speech about his, you know, the format was memories of his time in the Senate. And he put this down, he listed this as the toughest day he ever had in the Senate, and it was nearly 30 years in the Senate, the day when he was going to lose this battle. And he asked rhetorically in his remarks, and in, as we talked, if he had to do it all over again, would he have accepted Senator Hatfield's offer? Would he have achieved this victory and sent this to the states? And he said no. And he said, he, as he looked back at it, he wouldn't because he said part of a full life is defeat as well as victory. And every full life, as his certainly did, had its ups and its downs. And no one he knew had won everything he, they tried at. And that what is most important was that you, at least you were in there trying. Not whether you won, but you were in there giving it your best shot. And he said he still wouldn't have accepted Senator Hatfield's offer.
How do you think Senator Dole will be remembered as time goes on? I think as one of the greatest legislative leaders of the, of the second half century, of the tw- second half of the 20th century. Uh, a true uh, gentleman, a man who put, often put his uh, country ahead of his party, was unafraid to do that. Um, one of the most gifted legislative tacticians of the time. Someone whose fingerprints can be found on almost every piece of major legislation of the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, first half of the, ni- the first couple of years of the 1990s, uh, a man who was responsible for saving Social Security, who uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, food stamps, uh, made a profound, profound difference, I think, for his years in public service. Some people credit him for being the master legislator, this tactician, and, and so forth. Um, do you feel that there there is a real body of conviction and, and uh, things that drive Senator Dole? He is, was a blend of idealism and realism. I think as he, you know, as he started out in politics and certainly throughout his career, there are certain core principles that he, never, that he never strayed from, that he believed in, that he fought for. But as a leader, I think he saw pretty quickly that uh, he, he often said, and I heard him say, you know, uh, 80% is better than nothing. Because I can come back the next year with a little amendment and get 20%. Uh, he quoted Everett Dirksen, the late Senate leader, and Dirksen once said, I am a man of fixed and unbending principles, and one of my principles is flexibility. And I think that was Bob Dole. Bob Dole had principles, but he was wise enough to be flexible, to know that in Washington, D.C., you can't get everything you want. If you insist on getting everything you want, you'll get nothing. And I think that was, frankly, Speaker Gingrich's fault. He thought he could get everything he wanted, and he ended up not getting much of anything uh, back then because he... If you got to be flexible to take the victories you can, and and it doesn't matter who gets the credit. I think that was another one of Senator Dole's principles. I saw many times where he would come in with an amendment with a fix that would get these the blocked parties, the blocked negotiations off the dime and get things moving again. And he would willingly give the credit to somebody else. He didn't care who who got the credit. Um, so I, yeah, just one of the great I think senators of our of our time, the great public leaders of our time. You use the word core values mm-hmm. or core issues for him. Describe some, just a few of those. I, I, no one was more, you know, eloquent about the importance of a, of a balanced budget, of not, of not of getting the debt down, of eliminating the deficit, uh, the strength, the importance of the family farm, of American agriculture, uh, the fact, uh, the need for the existence of a social safety net, which is not something you heard a great deal from Republicans, and in which I think came from his personal experience of of being in poverty and of he writes in his book of having to sign the social security checks when he was county attorney or sign the welfare checks for his grandparents uh, he saw life from the other side of the tracks and he knew there were Americans who through no fault of their own could not uh, make ends meet could not help themselves and that he was uh, I think he was a compassionate conservative before that term was cool before that term was used um, so I think that's another he was a uh, you know, there's, a, there's Main Street Republicans and there's Wall Street Republicans. Uh, he was a Main Street Republican. He, he knew what the Main Street grocer was thinking and what the neighbors needed. And he, uh, he was just a great, a great leader. What about bipartisanship then? Another now? lesson for him certainly is bipartisanship. Again, as he said in his farewell speech, uh, he and Senator Mitchell and Senator Daschle, those, those are the two Democrat leaders that were in when I was in with Senator Dole, I mean, they disagreed on 90% of the issues. 
but they trusted each other implicitly. The word, the word was their bond. I mean, they knew that Bob Dole would never knowingly tell them something false, would never mislead them. He wouldn't tell them his strategy, but he would never, you know, would never lead them down a, down a garden path. He was going to tell them the truth. Uh, and that, in the Senate, that's the only way to keep it running. I think we've seen some deterioration of that attitude and, and since then. Uh, more partisanship, not enough partnership. Uh, but, but Dole was a, was a man of his word. I know he's told the story frequently of a time where he... Uh, where he might have accidentally misled one of the leaders to what he was doing, so he withdrew the amendment immediately. I mean, he uh, he was not going to do anything that would make them think that his word was not his bond, that he had not told them the truth. Uh, it was totally upfront with him, uh, whether he agreed with them or disagreed with them. He let them know where, where they were going and where they were headed and what he believed. One little footnote here. Uh, as speechwriter, did you ever participate in writing any, any legislation? No, no, no. So, when you get home tonight, uh, you're going to click your finger and say, "Why didn't I mention such and such?" <laughs> well, another story that I remember, you know, just because it shows the type of man he was and leader he was, occurred during the um, right before the New Hampshire primary in early 1996. It was at that time, I think, it was in December or January, when President Clinton came to Congress and asked for uh, congressional authority to send American troops to Bosnia. At the time, they were going through the Milosevic and the genocide and polls of Americans, and more importantly for Senator Dole's political interest, polls of New Hampshire Republicans showed overwhelming opposition to this idea of sending troops to Bosnia. Americans had concluded uh, that we didn't have a dog in the fight, we didn't have a political interest over there, any interest over there, and that we shouldn't risk American lives by going over there. Senator Dole uh, disagreed. Uh, he, he saw genocide happening. And, you know, I saw pollsters and consultants come into him and saying, Senator, your, your path is clear. You need to lead the fight against this. After all, you're going to be running for president against President Clinton. Uh, polls, New Hampshire Republicans are against it. You take a public role. You lead the fight against this. We guarantee you, you know, you'll win the New Hampshire primary. And he said, uh, and I heard him say it, he said, you know, America can only have one commander-in-chief at a time. And like it or not, Bill Clinton is our commander-in-chief. And my duty as a Senate leader, and implicitly, I think, as a veteran, is to support my commander-in-chief. And instead of leading the fight against President Clinton, he and Senator McCain, another veteran, another war hero, led the fight for it. And it passed, I think, only because of their support. If they had opposed it, especially Senator Dole, if he had opposed it, led the fight against it, I don't think it would have passed. Uh, Republicans uh, controlled the Senate. And he and McCain went the other way on it and led the fight for it. And it was a prime example, I think, of someone putting the nation's interest above their own political interests, which is something that we need to see more of, I think. And uh, I just thought it was just, it stands as an example of what is good and decent about, about public service. What about Dole and foreign policy? He was a student of foreign policy. Um, I mean, wherever he traveled, the world leaders loved to, loved to meet with him, loved, loved to talk with him. Uh, he was an internationalist. I think he saw uh, in World War II, of course, the value of American leadership. Uh, he came, and, he, and, he, and he's written and spoken of the fact that he, when he came to Congress in 1960, he was something uh, of, not an, of not an internationalist. And President Johnson 
Lyndon Johnson made him part of a delegation, uh, a food for peace or some sort of food delegation, and he went and he saw poverty and starvation in other countries and saw the need for American assistance and American help, and I think that uh, played a big role in changing him to make him more of an uh, internationalist as well. Did you travel on any of the Codells? I did not. not did not travel foreign countries with him, so... You uh, are a little bit unusual in terms of most of the people we've been interviewing in that you have seen and worked with him a lot since he left the Senate. Mm -hmm. How's post-Senate dull strike you? Great. I think I'm in, uh, I live and work in Oregon now, and I'm the the state director for one of Oregon's U.S. senators and run his offices out there, but have stayed in touch, as you've said in the past. It's been uh, 11 years. Uh, this last month since I left Senator Dole's employee, and I've stayed in touch over the 11 years, uh, helping him with, with the books, with speeches, with occasional one-liners for Letterman and Leno, and, and just keeping in touch with him. He'll call just to get caught up, just to talk politics, what's going on with my boss, at, what do I hear about other things. Uh, and I, I think he has uh, he's found a great place for himself. He's a national, he's a, you know, I think he, Senator Dole has the need to be to play a role and, and to make a difference, and I think he's he's found that with issues such as the uh, the World War II Memorial, uh, with the with the Veterans Commission that he that he chaired recently. That that was a great assignment for him. Uh, so I th- I think he's found uh, he he talks has talked often and wrote in his book about the best advice he ever got, which was from Dr. Kalikian, the famous Armenian surgeon who played such a role in his life and helped him after World War II and performing the surgeries on his arm, but more important than the surgeries are equally as important, Senator Dole said, was the verbal equivalent to a slap on the face he gave him, which was to finally tell him to stop searching for a golden bullet, to stop searching for a cure, that he was not going to be restored to normal. Senator Dole said he thought, fought, fought for months and months and months to find the magic cure that would restore him to what he was like before he went to war. And it wasn't until Dr. Clickian stopped him and told him and said, I'll, I can do this, I can do this, but I can't, and no, no one ever will be able to restore you to what you were before World War II. And he said, you have to make the most of what you have. And I think throughout his career in public service and now since leaving the office, Bob Dole has made the most of what he has. So I think he's found found the place now where he can do that in this time of his life. I think we're done. Okay. Thank you. You bet. Hope that was okay. <laughs>